Hello and welcome to the next episode of Rendezvous with the Expert. This is Dr. Shobhana Rajat from the Cleveland Clinic and on behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, it is a great privilege to have Dr. Adrian Gelb as our expert today. Dr. Gelb is a distinguished professor of anesthesiology at the UCSF and is a renowned neuroanesthesiologist. He is also ex-president of the SNAC and recipient of the SNAC Distinguished Service Award and Teacher Award. He is the author of multiple publications, has written about 62 book chapters in addition to being the editor of five books. Today, we will have his expert opinion on the relatively new and upcoming area, anesthesia for neurointerventional procedures. Dr. Gelb, welcome. Thank you very much. My pleasure and honor to participate in this podcast. Our first question to you today is, what are some of the common procedures done in the neurointerventional suite? Is there a trend towards doing more interventional procedures for cerebrovascular disorders when compared to open surgical treatment? The neuroendovascular cases can be divided into intracranial and extracranial, in other words, within the skull and those that occur on the face and the neck. The pathologies are actually uh, similar, just the locations are different. Uh, the most common intracranial lesions that one encounters are aneurysms and to a significantly lesser extent AVMs. And then a smaller component of uh, the practice would be uh, dural fistulas, uh, tumors that have extensive vascularity, uh, for example, a vascular meningioma, and more recently an increase in the use of acute intra-arterial thrombolysis for the management of acute strokes. For aneurysms, the uh, endovascular approaches are used for uh, pretreatment delineation of anatomy, for decision-making about coiling versus open surgical clipping, uh, for post-operative confirmation of the adequacy of clipping, uh, management of vasospasm, and in the longer-term follow-up to confirm that coiling and or clipping have been successful and that no new aneurysms uh, have occurred. In terms of the uh, changing practice, the uh, ISAT trial, which is uh, more than 15 years old now, uh, and the results of which were largely confirmed by the more recent uh, Barrow trial, the BRAT trial, moved practice uh, much more towards coiling as opposed to open surgical intervention. Uh, however, uh, some aneurysms are not yet amenable to coiling, so clipping certainly isn't going away soon. Uh, in relation to other lesions, uh, endovascular approaches to AVMs and vascular tumors are really focused on uh, attempts at devascularizing prior to surgery rather than being curative uh, in and of themselves. Thank you, Dr. Gelb. Our next question will be, what are the anesthetic considerations and challenges faced in these procedures? Well, probably the biggest challenge is that one's working in a remote, often unfamiliar location where it may be difficult to get quick help from colleagues. Uh, so some important considerations, uh, if it's not a part of your hospital you're familiar with working in, be sure to check out the location well in advance and make sure that you have all of your usual equipment, your 
usual anesthetic machine or at least an anesthetic machine you're familiar with and your usual drug cart and usual monitoring equipment. Communication, uh, as in the operating theater, is vital and you should make sure that the interventionalists uh, know who you are, you know who they are, and also that you know where each will be spending most of your time. Uh, this is something that uh, you can and should uh, cover off during your timeout uh, or checklisting procedure. Uh, other considerations to discuss at that time is approximately how long will this procedure be, Will it be a 90-minute angiogram, or is this going to be a four- to six-hour or longer treatment? Uh, they can't always guess accurately, but they can give you uh, some kind of assessment. You need to look at the work location, understand how you access your intravenous. Uh, do you need to add in extra extensions so that you can reach an injection port? Does sure. your suction reach the patient? Uh, wherever the bed is going to be turned. Uh, so ask how will the patient be turned. And if you're doing a MAC, you need to know how to intubate the patient in a hurry. How do you get to the head? What equipment needs to be moved? And a final consideration, of course, is radiation safety in that environment. There are uh, nice formulae uh, that one needs to know, perhaps for exams, about radiation exposure. The simplest uh, guideline I can offer is if you can see the X-ray tubes, the X-ray tubes are likely irradiating you. Uh, stand with the radiologists. They'll make sure they're in a safe place. And it'll also give you an opportunity to see the angiograms as they come up and hear their comments. Alternatively, stand behind a lead screen and wear lead apron, which may be heavy. And if you're going to be working in this environment regularly, consider wearing a radiation exposure badge. Sure. We would now like to know if there is a preference for monitored anesthesia care over general anesthesia for these cases. Also, for the cases done under general anesthesia, is there a preference for inhaled versus intravenous anesthetic agents? Uh, clearly, a, a component of the decision on uh, MAC versus general anesthesia is the comfort and familiarity of the entire team. Uh, some proceduralists are more comfortable with a general anesthetic than a MAC. Others prefer a MAC. And, of course, your uh, anesthetic expert opinion on the patient's ability to tolerate a MAC or the safety of a MAC is also important. Where uh, neurologic assessment is a part of the uh, procedure, clearly a MAC is mandatory. Uh, and there's also uh, a current preference for MAC for acute stroke thrombolysis based on retrospective studies suggesting a worse outcome with general anesthesia. Uh, our own practice is we do uh, MAC for diagnostic angiography and we do general anesthesia if treatment is anticipated. So this is something that needs to be discussed in advance. Uh, in terms of the anesthetic choice, inhaled versus intravenous anesthetics, I'm not aware of any evidence that the specific anesthetic drug choice influences the outcome of neurointerventional procedures. And I would suggest that one uses the same considerations and preferences one has 
uh, for an open surgical procedure in these patients. Do you think there's a role for dexmedetomidine in neurointerventional procedures? DEX has many useful characteristics, and I think it could be a useful agent for some MAC cases, uh, especially in those patients who uh, disinhibit with propofol or midazolam. These are often uh, younger individuals, frequently male, who start to behave like they've had a little alcohol and want to move around and talk. Mm -hmm. I have to confess that we don't use it a lot mainly because we don't have a satellite pharmacy on the floor where we do our neurointerventional cases, and so there's an added uh, logistic disincentive to going to get the drug. In terms of general anesthesia, I'm a little concerned about the hypotension that accompanies uh, dexmedetomidine, and I'm not sure that there are advantages to dex as a component of general anesthesia in this patient population. Thanks for giving us a very good picture on this. We would now like to know, what is your opinion about judicious use of muscle relaxants in these patients? Uh, use of muscle relaxants, relaxants would be uh, very similar to the guidelines in the operating room. Uh, I think patients who've had a recently ruptured aneurysm should be well paralyzed before intubation. Uh, you don't want the surges of uh, arterial and venous pressure with uh, coughing on intubation that may be detrimental to a, a fragile aneurysm. Uh, during treatments, uh, fairly prolonged periods of apnea may be required, and, and this is uh, facilitated by the use of neuromuscular blocking drugs, although one can achieve the same endpoint with uh, opioids or some modest degree of hyperventilation. Can you please elaborate the hemodynamic goals for various neurointerventional procedures? Well, as a, a sweeping generalization, I'd say under general anesthesia in most patients, uh, I aim to keep the blood pressure in approximately the patient's normal range. In patients with vasospasm, uh, I use the ICU guideline as my reference point for where to keep the blood pressure, usually quite markedly elevated above baseline. For uh, acute stroke thrombolysis, uh, blood pressures up to about 180 on 100 are acceptable. Don't reduce them. However, after thrombolysis, successful thrombolysis, our practice is to keep pressure a little lower at about 140 on 90 to hopefully reduce the likelihood of hemorrhagic conversion. In MAC patients, one actually has uh, not a lot of control on uh, blood pressure, and uh, significant blood pressure management isn't necessarily. In a small percentage of patients uh, who may be having a balloon test occlusion before permanently occluding a major artery, when the balloon is inflated, one may be asked to reduce the blood pressure as a stress test on the collateral circulation. And in those cases, one needs to discuss how low one is trying to achieve blood pressure. Last but not the least, we would like to know what complications to expect and how should we manage them. Uh, probably the most common complication in uh, MAC patients and sometimes under general anesthesia is unexpected movement, and this usually happens in relation to pain or unanticipated pain. 
The most serious complications are unplanned vessel occlusion and hemorrhage. If there is a vascular occlusion, for example, a misplaced uh, coil or a glue, usual practice is to raise blood pressure between 20 and 30 percent to try and maximize collateral flow, but these parameters should be discussed with the proceduralist. If there's hemorrhage, one would want to avoid excessive hypertension unless one thinks the hypertension is a response to a significant increase in intracranial pressure. One needs to discuss the blood pressure with the proceduralist and also if you've used heparin, whether one should give protamine and how much. And while one's having that discussion, one should be prepared for an emergency EVD, a trip to the CT scanner, or possibly going to the operating room for hematoma evacuation. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Gell. My pleasure. Thank you.